Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspectives series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema culture and society. So let's begin. This is Future Spectives. We get this show on the road, please. Let's go. Let's go. All right, producer here. Yeah, producer here. Welcome to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast. I'm your host, Gabby, responsible for several of the most profitable films in Hollywood history. Jason Blum, congratulations on winning the Premio Ramundo Rezzonico, the Best Producer Award. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy. Thank you for having me uh, on your on your podcast. In the beautiful setting of Locarno. Have you yeah, been yeah. before? I've never been to Locarno before. I'm here with my wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. We just took a boat ride to an island and had a beautiful picnic. It was incredible. Oh, sounds fantastic. So growing up, apart from a love of Hitchcock movies, you weren't that obsessed with the horror genre. So how did you first start to, to dig to dig horror. horror. Well, my, yeah. both my parents were in the arts. My mom was an art historian. She was a professor of art history. Mm-hmm. My father was an art dealer. Um, he's retired now. And so I was very exposed to arts, but I was, um, I, I never loved how modern art is very elitist. You have to have kind of have a, 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 histor- a historical background of art to really appreciate it. So I was more drawn to arts for the masses. That's why I really kind of was drawn to movies and television. And horror specifically, when I started my career, I really preferred independent art house movies yeah. um, and foreign movies, subtitled movies. But I didn't like the distribution of those movies because no one ever saw them. So I made these little independent movies that nobody ever saw. Then I finally got to make The Tooth Fairy, which was a completely goofy movie. But I saw how a big worldwide studio, that was in that case it was Fox, distributed a movie. Yeah. And Paranormal Activity came out the same time as Tooth Fairy. And Paranormal Activity was a combination of both things. It was a completely independent movie, but distributed by a studio. So the reason I was kind of initially drawn to horror, it was I was able to make independent movies and have them released by studios. And to a certain degree, that's still what we do today. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, speaking of paranormal activity, Jason, I want to talk cold hard cash with you right now Mm. because it set the tone for low budget, high profit, right? So it was made on $15,000 and then took in nearly 200 million at the box office. That is correct. You've got your figures correct. So was it a conscious decision or was that just the budget you had or you literally had at the time or were you like, this is how the fi- I want to make it? $15,000. Yeah. It was actually the director. The director put up the money uh, his, oh. and his name was Oren Pelly and he paid for it himself. He was a video game designer and he did okay, but he didn't have a lot of money. He didn't make, he wasn't wealthy by any means. He was comfortably middle class. And so the amount of money that he saved to make a movie, he's kind of a brilliant guy he he only directed two movies he directed paranormal activity and then he did we did another one together called area 51 which wasn't so good um and then he left the business entirely and he didn't but, need uh, to work again it was he was he was he was done he was done but he put up the money to to make the original movie and it was just that was all he had really well you've had quite the career since you yourself what do you think the key to this crazy success has been 
Um, well, uh, let's see. I love movies. I'm, I love TV shows. I love storytelling. I'm very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. We didn't. I wasn't tempted to make more expensive movies when we made hits. I think Hollywood pushes people to make more. The, the answer to having a hit movie is to make the next movie more expensive. And I think one of the best career decisions I ever made was to not follow that mantra. Mm. And something that I read from uh, an interview with you is that you were always very deliberate. Very deliberate. I always knew I wanted to create a machine that would help me realize my crazy dreams. I always was interested in creating a place where I could look at a book or a script or a pitch and have my own apparatus to turn it into a movie or a show. I've wanted that since I was 25 years old. It's definitely a dream come true. That's, those are my words. Exactly. Those are your words. I, I couldn't agree it's more with kind myself. Of weird I to completely read agree. That yeah. was fantastic. I couldn't have said it better myself. Oh, wait a second. That was me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a different way of saying. Um, well, there are a couple of things embedded in that. The first thing is that I've been very deliberate in terms of strictly adhering to my model mm. and not getting too distracted by bells and whistles and other things that I think in Hollywood is, you have to have a certain amount of discipline to do that, which I think mm-hmm. that the company has. And um, what I was talking about, one of the things I was talking about in that quote is, I've always wanted a, a machine that would help me turn the stories that I loved into movies and TV shows. And yeah. we have that now. So not yes. everything we do is horror. We sometimes do yes. documentaries, we do television shows, we did a show about Roger Ailes, we did a show about slavery. We do all different things. Yeah, you don't shy away from the uncomfortable. I love the uncomfortable. <laughs> I love the uncomfortable. Yeah, so the machine we're talking about is Blumhouse Productions. The machine we're talking about is Blumhouse, exactly. And, and, and I think, um, you know, I used to, when I was earlier on in my career, and I I still think this is true, I always thought that very, very famous actors, movie stars, didn't get enough blame for when everyone says, oh, why are Hollywood movies all the same? I feel like talent has to also share in that blame because the movies that movie stars want to do are the movies that get made. So I always said to myself when I was younger, Mm. if I ever was in the position to actually, to, to have a company powerful enough to get things made, I wouldn't just do commercial or just do horror, just do that. But I would do other things that might not see the light of day um, without the company. For instance, at Sundance, just this past year, six months ago, we bought this uh, terrific movie called Soft and Quiet, which I love, which played it. uh, And it wasn't at Sundance, it was South by Southwest. And, uh, And that's a movie that the engine of Blumhouse will propel, hopefully, out into the world that um, that might not have gotten as far without us. Okay, well, let's go more into the engine of Blumhouse. 50% of your movies these days are sequels. Again, if I've done my research correctly. Insidious Part 4, The Purge Part 5, etc. How quickly does it take you to realize, okay, we need to we need to do another one of these We need bad to make boys. another one? Yeah. Yeah, 50% of what we do is existing IP. Sequels are existing IP, and about 50% of what we do is are still originals. Um, how quickly does it take? Well, it doesn't take that long. If the movie's performed incredibly well, you need a couple things. Mm-hmm. You need a great box office performance of the preceding movie, and you need a willingness on the part of the at least the original creator um, or the original director to want to keep going with it. I wouldn't. Right. I wouldn't particularly want to do a franchise without the without the willingness of the original creator, either directing or wanting us to continue. Right. Because I would imagine there's a few different ways. Like it could be the reception just you know blows up, but it also may be like when you look at the script, you're like, oh, there's another one here. You know. I didn't know. Well, no. No. We, we actually very specifically don't, don't do, that do that because because when movies are inexpensive. 
one of the great joys of making inexpensive movies is you don't have to worry about it's hard enough to make one good movie and to make one good movie and worry about the movies that would come after that yeah that's the job of studios who make hundred and two hundred million dollar movies when you're spending that kind of money you have to have an idea of what the franchise will be when you spend five million dollars you never have to think about it which is very freeing so any director who says i have a great idea for a movie and i know what the sequels are I say, you're in the wrong office. Just make a great movie. We'll deal with the sequels later. Now, everything that I just said does not apply to movie number two. It's the exact opposite. So if you've made one movie, if you've made The Purge, and you're now embarking on the second Purge, you've created a franchise, you've created intellectual property that's resonating with a bunch of people out in the world. So when you make a second one, then you do want to think about what the third one will be. But that's a lot easier. If the second time around, it's a lot easier. That is so interesting. You're really peeling back the curtain a bit there. I did. I did. It's our magic (laughs) formula. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We touched on that you, well, you, you love the uncomfortable. Have you ever been involved in something where you've been like, oh, maybe I should pull out of this. This is getting a bit too. Yes, many times, many times, Uh, many, many times. And sometimes we, we, you know, you do a movie. One of the hardest things to do is to shut a movie down before you start shooting, to shut a movie down and prep, because there's this momentum and speed that gets behind a movie. And you think, well, I'm going to compromise here, but it'll get the movie made. I'm going to compromise here. It'll get the movie made. If you've made too many compromises before you start shooting your movie, the stronger and more difficult thing to do is to shut it down. And that takes time and experience Mm. to learn to do that. Mm. So I I challenge our executives all the time at the company to be wary, even if we've spent a million dollars or two million dollars, if everyone's feeling really, really uncomfortable or like this is a huge mistake, the stronger, harder decision is to shut the movie down. Wow. So you must like to challenge the audience as well then. I do. I like to keep the audience on their toes. I like to keep the audience thinking. I really do. I love that. Yeah. Can I ask about, to a producer such as yourself, when I'm watching a movie, there's a lot of um, actors that get producer credits. Maybe not so many producers that will try their hand at acting. Why do they do that so much? When uh, When an actor or a director asks for producer credit, I often say back, only if I get a director credit or only if I get an acting credit. Well, I often say that. That was going to be my follow-up question. Would you ever, you know... No, I would... I never... I think of one camera. of my strengths as a producer is I have, I have no... I would be a terrible uh, director. Actor, I would... Actor, I would be more likely to try, although I'm really bad at acting too. I have done it and I'm very bad at it. But uh, directing, I can tell you, I would never do. Acting, okay. we have a couple movies where I have little parts in them and I think that's fun. Um, but more interestingly, to your point... There are a lot of actors who get credits and mostly makes the, the movie or show harder to make and is not additive. There are, however, some actors who are incredible partners and really understand um, movies from a producer's point of view. Mm-hmm. And the first one to come to mind is Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, mm-hmm. And the second one to come to mind is Octavia Spencer, who we did Ma with. Oh, wow. And she was such a good producer on that movie. Her deal did not have an executive producer credit. 
And when the movie was done and we were doing the credits, I said, I, you, I want to give you an executive producer credit. You earned it and you should have one. And if you'll accept it, please allow me to give you one. And she said, okay. And I've done that three times where an actor has t- taken such a, such a great producerial leadership role. Jamie Lee Curtis had credit going in, but mm. she's also like a real producing partner. Mm. Um, but that's, they're the exception to the rule. I knew it. You knew it. Yes, yeah. Sometimes I you gotta knew do it. it. You got to do it as part of the negotiation. You <laughs> do it to save money because if they do get a credit, they'll take a little less money. That's usually the case. Just peeling back the curtain a bit more in terms of a, being a producer, how much time do you spend on set or does a as, producer? As, as little as possible. Really? I hate being on set. Every producer is different. Some right. producers like doing one or two movies a year and getting very, very involved. Mm-hmm. That would drive me insane, as you can see by my credits. I do many, many, many movies and many shows. At the same time, I like doing being a little bit involved everywhere. We always have someone from the company on set, on the set of our movies. There's always someone uh, who works works with the company all the time, two or three people. I find sets horrible, boring. There's no reason for me to be there. If your producer's that involved in what's going on on the set, in my opinion, you haven't done a terrific job. You know, we trust our directors. We have people there to put out fires, but sitting around on a set is very boring to well, me. Well, speaking of trusting your directors, you, on nearly every project, give them the final cut in the edit, right? Which we do. We isn't make... necessarily how it's done. Done in Hollywood. It's yes. how they do it in Europe, but not Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> right. We, we take the French auteur theory, we apply it to uh, <laughs> to Hollywood uh, horror movies. But uh, but yeah, we have we make kind of agreement with the director. We say, well, look, we're not gonna you're not gonna have as much money as you usually get to make your movie. But in exchange for taking less money yourself as a salary and for making the movie for less money as the director, you have final cut. So I, I think it's immoral to tell a director they're going to participate in the profit of a movie, but yeah. then not let she or he make the creative decisions. So I always say, I can't promise you you'll make a fortune, but you're going to at least live and die in your own work. More often than (laughs) not, luckily for me, directors like that challenge and they like to do that. And the other thing I found is that because directors aren't used to having final cut and aren't used to having creative control in Hollywood, as soon as you relinquish that to, to the directors, the process becomes much more collaborative because they're not always going home at night worried that the studio isn't going to let them do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. They know they're going to get to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So if they know that, they're much more likely to ask our advice for casting or for script or for location or all the things mm-hmm. because it's a, it's, a, it's a conversation they know they can have that they won't lose. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not perfect. I mean, sometimes I really disagree with the director <laughs> and we get into a, a you know pretty serious i wouldn't say yeah. fight but a pretty you know it gets it, it gets contentious it gets heated. but mm-hmm. it gets heated but in the end i have to be comfortable with the fact that even if i think it's so wrong i have to let the director do what they want to do wow and yeah. what about dealing with difficult talent you mean actors? Yes. What about dealing with typical talent? How, I've dealt how, with a lot of typical I, talent. I, this is why I'm asking. What and are you I asking feel, about? Well, I'm just like, you seem to have a, a nice a, a way of letting them be, but also getting your way. I don't like, I actually like drama. I was about to say I don't like drama. I actually do like drama. I like, I, I love drama, like personally in my own life, I think it's kind of fun, fun drama, not... I actually don't love conflict, that kind of drama, but I like mm-hmm. traumatic things. I don't like getting in these endless, um, ridiculous conversations 
with 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 difficult pieces of talent. So I think that's one of the reasons we we work with actually very few like huge movie stars. We do it more in television than in movies, but we still don't work. If you look at the actors who've worked with us, mm-hmm. there have been a handful, but there haven't been massive movie stars. I think one of the reasons for that is that I, I shy away from that. I find it also very boring. Absolutely, fair enough. What advice would you give to any budding producers or, or those that are wanting to get into the profession? Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that people waiting to get into the profession, they're waiting for permission. They're waiting for someone to tell them, give them a little money to make their script or or tell them it's okay. Mm. And I think the way that technology exists today, it's so easy to make a movie that the way to become a producer is find someone you think is a good director and produce what they want to do. Their movie about their short, they shoot it on a phone and make a movie in your apartment. It won't cost any money. The way to get good at producing is to do it. And I think the problem with young when not young producers today the problem with young producers through the ages mm-hmm. is that including myself is that you spend a lot of time talking about it when you're young and that's not going to make you better what's going to make you better is actually doing it so you got to make huh. 10 bad movies until you get to a good one so, so the earlier start the farther ahead you'll be so you don't go up the ranks like starting off as a production assistant i would not advise a... that but, ah. you, know, you could some people do that but i i would not advise ah, that that route so... but i didn't take that route so of course i don't give it but okay. a lot of people have taken that route and done, done very well yeah Man, I could talk to you for so much longer, but I'm going to be respectful of your time. And bringing it back to Locarno, now you've experienced it, are you tempted to shoot something here? I'd love to shoot. I love, I love, I lived in Europe for two years. Uh, I went to high school here for a year. I went to college here for a year in France, actually. I, I much prefer Europe, actually, to the United States. So hopefully someday <laughs> I'll come here and live. Uh, and, I, and to answer your question, I would love to shoot a movie here. What kind of movie would you shoot in Locarno? In Locarno? Yeah. I don't know. We went to the island in the lake here, and there was a lot of bamboo and steam. You could come up with something very scary, so maybe something on that island. Ooh, watch this space. <laughs> Jason Blum, thank you so much. Thank you. What a joy. One thing left to do, Jason, and it's roll your closing credits. Oh, I can't wait. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? Wizard of Oz is the movie I've watched the most time, and because I watch it every year for 20 years when movies were only on TV and you didn't have VHS or discs or whatever else, I watch it with my mother. We watch it every year for, I don't know, not 20, but certainly 10 or 15 years, and now I've seen it another 10 times with my kids. Nice. Lions and tigers and bears. Lions and tigers and bears. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself with your friends, what movie would you like to watch on the ginormous screen? Moulin Rouge. That's a good one. You're directing a movie about your life. I know you don't want to direct, but what would the opening and closing scenes look like? I mean, opening and closing? What isn't closing my death? I mean, what is it? What is it? It's uh, open to interpretation. Open to interpretation. I got it. Opening scene, interestingly enough, would probably be the year when I was 15 that I went to live in France because I feel like that was the kind of the first year that I realized life could be amazing. So I would say that would be my first, my opening scene. My closing scene hasn't been written yet. Great answers. (laughs) Okay. If you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be and who would you give it to? I would give it to kind of a prolific, great working artist in multimedia and I would give it to my dear friend, Ethan Hawke. We were talking about Ethan, was it today? Well, yeah, there you go. In, in admiration. He's four books. He's directed three movies. He's done two documentaries. He just did this amazing documentary about Paul Newman. He's an amazing- oh, really? Paul Newman? 
oh my God, he has a, you didn't know, he has an amazing six-part documentary about Paul Newman and John Woodward that's gotten, it's like 100% fresh rotten tomatoes. It's, it's incredible. It's okay. on HBO Max. That's on the list. And uh, he's I, I, been nominated or won a Tony. He's directed theater. He's directed movies. He's done it all. And I would give him the living multi-hyphenate artist award and I would give it to Ethan Hawke. Yes. <laughs> what are your hopes for the future of film festivals? I think film festivals serve an incredibly important purpose in the ecosystem of entertainment because they lift movies up that normally would not get seen or not paid attention to because they're not driven solely by selling tickets or by commercial forces. Mm -hmm. So so my hope is that film festivals become you know the most more important platforms than they already are. Although excuse me, that said, I think over the last 10 years, film festivals are actually more important now than they were even 10 years ago. I think, funnily enough, streamers who have a tough, difficult time making decisions for themselves focus a lot on the movies that win film festivals in terms of what gets distribution. And I actually think that's a good thing. Mm. What can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? What an art and cinema can do to improve people's lives is very simple. Uh, hopefully, it gets people with different points of view to talk to each other. We have great trouble with that in the United States, but we're, 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 we hopefully art will bring us together and hopefully it will draw people's attention to um, the world's problems that they hadn't normally considered and inspire them to help solve them. And I think that's the perfect way to wrap things up. I did it. Guys, are, do we, you, are, we, are we good? I, I, think, I think we got it. I think we, I think I mean, we I nailed think it's it. it's brilliant. Brilliant, yeah. if I don't I mean, say so about Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.